Good morning. Welcome to Men's Roundtable. Two weeks in a row, Scott Carter's in the house. I am telling you, second coming is near. It is near. Guys, you know, I was trying to, Mr. Creekmore told me one time, he said, you know, you put a lot of thought into what you're going to say when you, when you start us off in the mornings, don't you? Ron, I'm doing an introduction. You can sit down now. Thank you. You're blocking my view. Yeah, I do put a lot of thought into it. You know, I, I, I got my hair cut the other day. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. But Barbara said, you know, at your age, we charge a finder's fee. I said, a finder's fee? What does that mean? He said, yeah, what stopped growing on top of your head is growing in other places. It's in your ears and in your nose and in your eyebrows. And I said, yeah, eyebrows. That's the reason I'm here. I set the guard a little bit low. Got rid of the bushy eyebrows. I don't have bushy eyebrows anymore. My haircut matches my eyebrows now. Guys, I'm glad you're here. Uh, Phil is not with us. We have special speakers again. Special. Roan is special and Ben is great. Ben, Derek, and Roan are leading us this morning. Uh, and, and what a blessing it is to have them. Ben, I want to back up to uh, a previous uh, Thursday morning you shared with us. You shared something, and, I, and, and it's, it's, it's part of you that I love. You have a way of just exploding with information, and if it's not recorded, you got to go back and you got to go back and listen to it two or three times to gather everything that you say in such a short period of time. One of the things you said that was profound to me, and I just want to repeat it again this morning: when Adam and Eve found to be naked. When they had eaten of the fruit, the first sacrifice for man's sin was made. When an animal was sacrificed to clothing. Wow. How many times have I heard and read that in Genesis, but I never saw that. Never came to light with me. Never heard it explained to me that way. I'm glad I'm not looking for an animal skin to cover my sin. I don't think an elephant's large enough. <laughs> Jesus Christ is. He's large enough to cover your sin and mine. Large enough to cover the sin of the world. And despite what the media says, and despite what people want us to believe, our God is still in control. Even in Ukraine, and you've all in Texas. Enemy's here. He's alive and well as well. Who do you choose to look to? The enemy or Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity of gathering here. Lord, I thank you for ceasefire and the breakfast and coffee that's been provided. I thank you for the men that are here, the families that are represented. I thank you for Phil. Thank you for his time as he restores himself preparing for another series. Lord, I thank you for Roan and Ben and the message that they bring this morning. Lord, may you bless them. May you open our ears and open our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Here you go. Amen. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. It's off. Thank you, Joe. Um, 
man, guys, um, I uh, certainly, I know as many of us watching some of the you know, news reports of the deal in Texas and uh, uh, the Lieutenant Governor of Texas uh, is the real deal. Um, and, you know, he, I think it was on Fox or something, and, and he's just talking about, you know, what we need uh, is, is Jesus Christ. And that, that's just strong, you know. I'm, I'm sure he's, they're trying to cancel him. Um, but he, he talked about, um, I think it's 2 Chronicles um, chapter 7, um, and like what we need to do as believers is pray for God to heal our land. When you just, <laughs> I can hardly watch the news, uh, but man, that, that's where we are. Uh, all the things that are happening um, and what's going on. And, you know, some of you may have seen this week, which is just another, um, certainly a huge hit to the kingdom. Uh, the report that was released on the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, man, the damage that's done to the kingdom by this stuff is just, it's tragic. The, um, the woman that headed up that investigation, her name is Laura Rogers. Uh, she's one of the lead consultants with that guidepost solutions group and um, i had connected with her a couple of months ago in kind of a roundabout way but um, she didn't say a whole lot but she said it's bad and boy was she right um, you know our our podcast that we do that ben and i do uh well it's it's the Sex, God, and Chaos podcast uh, with Ron and Eva Hunter, hosted by Ben Derrick. But it's really Ron Hunter and Ben Derrick, because Eva will be a special guest on her podcast every now and then. It's not her cup of tea. Um, and uh, 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 Laura Rogers, who headed up that investigation, has agreed to be on our podcast. Uh, we've got to get that um, scheduled uh, hopefully that will happen but the title of our podcast is sex god and chaos and that whole you know the thing with baptist and that that's chaos because of just unhealthy sexuality it's all connected and it's just i mean it's just tragedy after tragedy and then the damage that's done to the kingdom. The enemy is real. You know, in Proverbs it says, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And certainly um, a fundamental understanding of, of wisdom begins with the acknowledgement and understanding of evil. And you just see it in our world today, there, there's no even concept of that. But it's real and there is an enemy. 
And, you know, it's funny, the title of our talk today is Trauma as a Tool for Transformation. And when we see this stuff and hear this stuff, we are affected. Um, and we're kind of using into the wilderness uh, as kind of a picture of, of trauma. Trauma happens in cultural ways, and it certainly happens in our individual lives. And what do you do with that? You're either going to transform your pain or you're going to transmit it. It's the only way it can go. And we're going to talk about that today. Um, we're going to start out just as we always do with, uh, with a song. And I believe this song is certainly ties into what we're going to talk about and certainly even in the bigger picture of what's just going on in our world today. There's only one answer. Or calls me home 
Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Amen. Words translated as wilderness occur nearly 300 times in the Bible. Wilderness seasons are brutal, but God is powerfully at work in the wilderness seasons of our lives. The only question is, do we, do we have eyes to see it? In order for God to give us the choice whether or not to trust him, he must present us with a moment or season of crisis. And since he wants us to seek help from him, he brings us through the wilderness to remove all other help first. When we're in the wilderness season, it's easy to lose sight of God's protection, provision, and preparation. We might even wonder, how can I trust God's goodness when I'm in this desolate place? But remember Jesus. He went through the ultimate wilderness, the desolation and humiliation of dying under the curse of God. If that's the measure of God's love and commitment to us, we can trust him in our own wilderness seasons. So let's journey together. And I would just say, guys, in Psychobabble, we would call the wilderness seasons um, and wilderness events. Uh, we would call that trauma. You could call it tragedy. Uh, you could call it a lot of different things. But those wilderness seasons, those times of darkness, the dark nights of the soul, is something that we will all experience. It's just called life. And then the question is, what do you do with it? Do you just go victim? And stay there? Or do you, do you transform it? And move into the role of the hero? Kind of the classic journey of life, the hero's journey. So we're going to kind of use Jonah. <laughs> I always say Jonah is kind of, I think he's my spirit animal. Um, uh, man, you know, Jonah is just, what a, what a character, right? Um, you know, the Old Testament prophets, uh, it's believed by, you know, Jewish theologians, by rabbis, that, that they uh, showed up to actually express the emotion of God. The emotions of God. And when you go read it from that standpoint, wow. Well, they're mad, <laughs> they're sad, <laughs> they're glad, and they're afraid. Those are the four core emotions uh, in, in all of us. And when you read the Old Testament prophets, it's all there. And Jonah embodies it in such an incredible way. Yeah, yeah he, he ends up even in that place. There's an interesting part about that story. After God does what he does, he's still kind of cranked down about it, which is, I can see why he's your spirit animal. Right? I mean, Jonah just, like, finally he gets to Nineveh, right? He just shows up, and I don't even think he says, like, good morning. I mean, like, everybody, you know, bows the knee. Even the, the, the dogs and cats and cows, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, and, and Jonah is just pissed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like one of the strangest endings to the. Isn't it a great, yeah. yeah. Is this yeah. on? 
Are there? Yeah, okay. I just got it. There we go. Yeah, it's one of the strangest endings. He's like, wait a minute. I thought this went how it was supposed to go. He's like, gosh, I'm still mad. Right? Still yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely masculine. So I think the, the biggest part of that story is we launch into talking about this and, and reading through. Um, I think we're going to hit at least two or three spots on the sheet today. I think we're going to. Yeah. We already have. We're trending we're, up and to the right. We are we're ahead of the game. Yeah. We but, might actually get to the handout. Yeah, the, the thing that stands out to me is um, the contrast between willingness and unwillingness. Mm. And that shows up in a, in a lot of different stories. I think, you know, for us as men, it's good for us to be able to back up and say, okay, what's, what's the theme here? What is God trying to say through this story overall? Uh, I love that about the Bible is you can kind of hover up here and you can learn a lot. You can get down here. You can learn a lot. If you look at Jonah, if we were to describe that uh, to our children, say, yeah, he didn't want to go. I mean, you know, like that's he was what it, unwilling. he was unwilling to go. And I, and I would say in my own story, before we get into a lot of the details this morning, that's that's been my story as well, um, that God says, I want you to go here. And I have some sense or understanding of that. But the largest thing that I'm feeling is no. Oh, yeah. I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, my little two and a half year old grandbaby daughter uh, or granddaughter. Uh, she, you know, man, it's so amazing how they figure out no, right? Just like, it, and the way she does it is like, you know, Evie, uh, it, it's it's time to take a nap. Are you ready to take your nap? And she says, not today, Pop. <laughs> That'll take care of that, right? Yeah, if, uh, yeah. okay. Yeah, and I, I mean, there's a phrase I say to God a lot. Not today, Pop. <laughs> That's not, it. not today. Yeah. There's a, you know, often there's a clear direction. I think, you know, I just want to, we're in the business of exposing the things that are hurting us, not judging each other, but hey, these are some tendencies that are not, not good about us. Uh, I think often we want to get together with other men and say, you know, I'm just not, I'm not real sure what God is up to here. And, and uh, I would just appreciate, uh, cover your prayers on this. And all that is just spiritual bypass for, I know exactly what God's asking mm. me to do. I just don't want to do it. So I would rather sit here on this boat and kind of pretend and think about it, maybe talk about it. And then mm. chaos ensues all around me. And, I, and I'm still going to delay. You know, it's just really a, a huge picture of the masculine journey. When we get in that place where we adopt a posture of unwillingness, even if we can put some spiritual skin around it. Dude, I sat with that guy this week. Yeah, easy. Isn't there a law that says you can't say that about my appointment with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Uh, very passive aggressive. Uh, oh yeah, but man, it, it is amazing. You know, just uh, I think uh, any of us in a helper role, it, it's like you sit there and you go, "Okay, dude, uh, here's here's what works. Here's what you need, and the thing that you need, the thing that's missing in your life, is you need to be more connected." with other men. That's what's missing. You're isolated, you're disconnected, and you're just confused. And, and you know, uh, typically a guy will say, yeah, man, I remember when I was really involved in church and had some guys that, you know, uh, I, I would at least see at church and talk to a little bit. Hey, how you doing? Fine, good, next Sunday. And, you know, life was pretty good then. Yeah. <laughs> like, What's Hello. changed? Yeah. Hello. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I mean, if you take this and, and you pull it out even further from the story of Jonah, I, I, 
when I was preparing for this morning and I saw wilderness, the, the word that came to me was valley. I think the Bible talks about the valley a lot, and especially with men's stories. And I've, I've been really digging into David lately, and there's a big difference between when David is facing a valley, what he when he does one thing or he does another. Um, when you look at his kind of uh, origin story and there's a giant across the valley, you read that whole story and David goes into that valley willingly and experiences victory against all odds, which I think as I scan across this room and think about the deer camp deck and how many years some of you guys have been involved with this, I think that's your story. That's walking into the valley willingly and slaying the giant and having that experience of uh, the phrase I want to use here is there's a certain level of validation that can only happen in the valley. And I know mm. we're going to get to Jesus, but <clears throat> so many men have been walking or just walking around that valley. You may be 55 years old and you've just been walking around the valley and your heart aches for that validation and you're not going to get it at 1030 on a Sunday morning listening to another man talk about his valley. That's not how it works. You the way get, they talk about their valley. Yeah, well, at some, I, at some missed, places. I wasn't there that At time. some places. <laughs> I just triggered you about the track. Ah, ah, who's, uh, who's keeping time on that? Um, well, they don't talk yeah. about their own valley. That's they don't right. talk about my valley. But yeah, yeah. So we just, keep, we just keep circling around. Like, I know something's down there, and I know I want it, but I don't. And this is the largest question that a man's going to ask related to the wilderness. Do I have what it takes mm. to be in the valley? That's a big question. Let me answer that for you. No, you don't have what it takes to be in the valley alone. You don't have what it takes. But we try to double 007 our way or Peter Pan our way. It doesn't work that way. You have to invite Jesus into it, which, which is a tough step for a man to say, you know what, I've got some weaknesses, some limitations. I can't go into the valley alone. But the world tells us, and read the enemy, Mark, go on down there, go on down there alone. Because he knows that the valley will chew us up. When you look at the language of David, uh, he says, this is God, this is God's activity. And I love the word he uses there. He doesn't sprint through the valley. He doesn't sit down and cry in the valley. He cries plenty, but he says, I'm, wa I'm walking. I'm walking through this valley. I'm a man at peace because God is with me. So when we start talking about wilderness, it's not long before you run into a conversation about, is that, are you going to avoid it or are you going to accept it? Well, and you know, the interesting thing about, you know, David's story in that when he goes to face the giant, I mean, David was fully prepared. Uh, he was an expert slinger. He'd been out there relegated to tending the sheep. Um, I believe uh, that David might have been the illegitimate son of Jesse. Um, I just defended some people. Um, you read the Psalms, it's, it's hard to avoid that. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so David is kind of out there, you know, uh, uh, on his own by himself. But what he's doing is he's figuring out how to be an expert slinger. And those guys were the snipers of today. And so, I mean, they could take birds out of the air with a sling. And so David walks into a battle with a giant and David shows up at a knife fight with a gun. I mean, that's one reason. I mean, David was prepared. It wasn't, you know, sometimes with that story, we think that God zapped him or something and he just goes in there and kills the giant. 
No, there was preparation involved. Mm. The story's so rich and parallels so much mm. with, with Jonah. I love when David goes in front of the king, who is kind of like this, he's the predecessor, which in the Bible would say, like, this is a little bit of a mentor or father figure. And the king says, well, if you're going to do this, which, by the way, it was, it was the king's job in the first place. When the giant comes out and says, send your best man, what he means is send your king and we'll settle this right now. The king is in the tent afraid, refusing to go into the valley. Uh, David and his hubris, for whatever reason, um, often when we feel rejected when we're young like that or other than we're trying to earn it and prove it, uh, God works with that situation. But the king says, if you're going to go, take my armor. And David puts it on. Hmm. And then the picture in the Bible is that he gets a few steps away and then he goes, this doesn't feel right. And he gives it back to the king. And he says, this armor hasn't been tested by me. And I can't go into the valley with your defense mechanisms. I need to take my own. Mm. And he separates himself out and he, and he gets five stones. And this, as the story goes, he only needed one. He took one. But he knew himself well enough to say, I'm going to take five. He was preparing to be in this battle for a minute. And then I love, I love these Bible stories, be able to say this in church. Then he takes the sword and he chops the head off of the giant and holds it up, it, you know. It was that that you did that in children's sermon. Yeah, he said, yeah. Yes. Come, Children, come, come on, gather on, around yeah, and the, tell you a sweet little story. Yeah, yeah. These steps are red because they're stained with the blood of a giant. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it didn't go that way. But uh, Children's sermon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, No place in church. Yeah, but mm. I think you make a great point in that that's, that's kind of the, the paradigm or the framework that we have. Like, Look how this worked out. And we don't slow down to think, Jonah was like, no, I'm not going. Okay, I'll go. No, but I don't want to go. And then just all hell breaks loose. And he's like, well, I guess, I guess going is better than not going. I mean, there's a huge dilemma there that the Bible actually represents. But the Bible doesn't say it is a possible solution to spiritual maturity. It is a possible solution to dodge the valley. Mm -hmm. Can't can happen. He had to go through it. Had to go through it. And Jesus, you point out Jesus as well. Jesus goes through the valley. We all have to do that. It's part of the journey. And, you know, the Jonah chapter 2 that's on the handout, you know, I believe that is the biblical picture of depression. Major clinical depression in the belly of the whale. Um, and, you know, part of my wilderness uh, journey, um, there are two times in my life that I believe um, I was certainly in the dark night of the soul. Uh, the first time was uh, when I admitted to my wife um, that I had a problem with pornography and then admitted to her all the other parts of that, which was a full-blown sexual addiction. And we went through two years of living hell and then we got divorced. And, and it was when we got divorced when it was the worst. Because I was beginning to figure out, you know, the damage um, that I had experienced from my parents divorcing when I was eight years old. And I'm looking at my little four-year-old, five-year-old, six, they were about four and six years old when we went through that. And it was dark because I'm like, wait a minute, God, it's not how this is supposed to work. I've come clean. I've been honest. You know, everything's supposed to, you know, A plus B equals C, right? Well, <laughs> that that wasn't God's plan. We divorced, and then uh, many of you know the rest of the story. Uh, we remarried, and it's really, you know, that's why we do what we do today. 
and uh, boy, it was it was it was the dark night of the soul uh, in a real way. I was angry at God. I did not understand. Um, it was pretty horrific, but God sustained me through a lot of people in my life. Uh, I had already developed a team. Um, I, I had uh, my counselor uh, that was just had a huge impact in my life. Uh, he passed away a couple of months ago. It was pretty sad. It was sudden, and uh, that guy influenced a tremendous number of people in uh, what he did around sexual wholeness, um, you know, nationally and internationally. Um, and then I had, uh, you know, support uh, in different groups and men's groups and support groups. And that was the only way I was able to sustain, um, to kind of keep my head on straight. Um, and then the second great wilderness um, experience for me was going through uh, major clinical treatment resistant, major clinical depression. And that was about uh, 15 years into recovery. And, you know, it's like, I, I was already in graduate school working on my you know, master's in counseling. Eve and I were celebrating recovery ministry leaders at our church, um, had a lot going on. And um, the company I worked for got bought out. And, you know, they start cutting up areas and uh, integrating uh, their team in with our team. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be homeless living under a bridge. <laughs> Started with anxiety and then it morphed into major clinical depression, treatment resistant. Nothing would touch it. And it lasted nine months. <laughs> that is the dark nine months of the soul because there's no worse place in that Jonah chapter two, um, that is the description of that level of depression. And that ended with a suicide attempt. Uh, like Jonah, I think that's why he's my spirit animal. Uh, we were both suicide survivors. <laughs> Jonah just had them throw him over, you know, throw him overboard, right? Uh, but that was a suicide attempt. And, and then he goes into the belly of the whale. That's the metaphor, I believe, for major clinical depression. And then obviously I survived that. And, um, and it's like, you know, the unwillingness, um, like we were never gonna move back to Mississippi. It, even I, I had, that wasn't anywhere in the plans. Loved my job, loved what I did. And then, poof, God had a different plan. But it was because of that, we wound up back here. <laughs> and, and what God's done in our lives uh, is absolutely um, just kind of surreal. Um, but I was unwilling. Mm. And I always say, it's like God grabs you by the earlobe and drags you through a keyhole. Mm. At deer camp, I say something different, but I don't say deer. But that's what it feels like when he's taking you to these wilderness places, these, these trauma experiences that we all go through. And what do you do with that? Do you transmit it or do you transform it? 
Yeah, he, he is the great transformer. So I think part of this comes down to an issue of how we view God, at least in my estimation. So this is it's kind of how things work in my brain, which is a little bit of a scary place. So, so buckle <laughs> it up. It is. Uh, yeah, yeah, can confirm. I, I, yeah, yeah affirm. Um, so part of what I do is think about Christmas and Easter, not on Christmas and Easter. It's a very non-Christian thing for me to do. But as we describe God as Emmanuel, God with us, uh, what we have taught ourselves in the Western church is that means that it's God is a little baby, no crying you make. But what I've begun to understand in my story is that God with me means that God is with me in the valley as a grown man standing with me. And I think mm. if we start to view God that way, we will begin to understand that we see God with skin on through other men, through community. Now, I don't want to celebrate the enemy, but I will point out that he does a great job at setting up systems that isolate us as men and convince us that we're the problem. Systemic issues inside of our society, I believe so many of them would be solved if we understood we have departed from God's design and community. You say all the time, connection is the cure for what ails us. What's broken in relationship has to be healed in relationship. And I have experienced, and I know many of you, we, we don't amen in this environment, but I know many of you would say, yeah, God went first in my story. Sometimes I view God as like the, the Southern dad who's like grabbed me by the back of the neck and he's like, go look at this, right? And uh, I remember the first time I watched, um, well, I can't say that about my parents. On TV, I remember the first time I watched uh, a dog, somebody taking a dog and like, no, 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 don't do that again. Man, that image stuck with me in my Southern Baptist environment growing up. Like, man, that's kind of what church feels like. You weren't in that report, were you? Uh, okay. TBD. Yeah. All right. No, yeah, yeah. yeah, I hope not. It would be an error <laughs> if I was in there. So I think the way that we view God really determines the way that we view the valley. It really makes a lot of sense that we would back up from the valley because we think that God is somewhere on his holy mountaintop. And he's sitting back saying, well, I guess we'll see how this is going to go. Mm -hmm. But the message of the life of Jesus Christ says the exact opposite. And even let's talk about Jesus for a second. Even when Jesus was about to go into his wilderness willingly, what did God do over his son? Now, you may, um, brace yourself. God, the father validated Jesus Christ as his son. He looked over his son and he said, and it's really mysterious the way the Bible puts it, but God says, that's my son, right? We read it today and we're like, oh yes, the Trinity. And they were all, they were complete and whole and their holy place. And the, but the, the Bible is trying to tell us that God is going to reach in there and he's going to prepare us for walking into the valley by saying, this is who you are. And then he follows that by saying, and I am pleased with him. So this, this begs a question of us as men. When's the last time you have been in a situation knowing what's coming and you have felt God say over your story and over your life, I'm proud of you, son. I am pleased with you, son. Have you had that experience? If you have, you know it's like medicine. But if you're convinced, I don't have what it takes to go into the valley or I don't want to go into the valley because I don't want to help the other people that are going to, they don't deserve it. You know, what we're saying is my daughter doesn't deserve it. My wife doesn't deserve it. My son doesn't deserve it. My community doesn't deserve it. It's not worth it. 
what we're really saying is we're not convinced that we have what it takes. I think mm. that's where Jonah found himself. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, we put it in the handout, you know, victim, you know, Jonah runs and like, no, I don't want to go and all that good stuff, right? And then hero, he goes to Nineveh and does the deal and everything happens. But, you know, the story doesn't end there. You know, it's not like any of us go from victim to hero and we just uh, stay the hero. I remember early in my Christian journey, I kind of thought that that's the way it's supposed to go, right? You come to Jesus, you get saved, and it's kind of this trajectory that looks like this. I just, I'm going to get better and better and gooder and gooder, and uh, I'm going to know more Bible, and I'm going to be the Bible answer man, and life's going to be hunky-dory, right? Isn't that the way it works? No, it doesn't. I mean, we, we vacillate between this victim and hero thing uh, probably, you know, 15 times a day. But but the, tra the trajectory is, man, I'm going to stay on the journey. I'm going to stay on the path. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's not going to be quick. It's going to be the rest of my life. But I've got to stay the course. And the only reason, I mean, you know, my healing and those two instances, and there have been others certainly in my life, but those were the two big ones, um, is, is I had other people come around me, uh, mm. even after the depression and the suicide attempt. Uh, I did 30 days at Charter Peachford Hospital, the mental hospital, one of them uh, in Atlanta. And uh, I always say, dude, I'm bona fide. They let me out. Some of you guys go in there and they might keep you. I don't know. I know some of you, right? But I got papers, uh, so I'm good. And then I did 90 days of short-term disability. And the most healing part of that time was, man, I had some buddies that that I, I just go, we would hang out. Um, we just, I'd ride around with one guy and, uh, it, it, and I'd go over to another guy's house and uh, we'd sit on his deck and, uh, some, uh, another guy that had dealt with depression uh, pretty severe in his life uh, we're sitting there laughing about all the crazy ways we talk about killing ourselves right God, it was so healing and we smoked cigars and drank a beer I mean it was like the laughter around that being able to laugh at yourself is so important in the healing process yeah, I find it very interesting that the human eye recognizes a straight line as unnatural, mm. as man-made. Uh, we even scanning over here to this side of the room, we can see the man-made, we can see the God-made. We're always striving to create straight lines for ourselves. And God, thankfully, in His grace and mercy, does not allow that because there's a, there's a way that we can know Him. We can only know Him in the dips of our story. That's why we talk about uh, Peter so much, because Jesus is with <laughs> him in the dip and explains to him, tells him who he actually is and who he's going to be in that moment in the dip. I can remember in my story, uh, just to share some vulnerably very quickly, uh, I was my body was fighting cancer as a young man at, at 17, and it, we'll skip all all the stuff there. But I, I get make my way to a doctor's office. And uh, you may, many of you may know him, Van Lackey. Uh, his bedside manner, uh, not so great. His ability as a doctor, awesome, right? Um, and he started making some apologies for that. And I said, uh, Dr. Lackey, I'm not here for a buddy. 
I'm here to get better. And he said, I can do that for you. But then he starts taking me through a questionnaire and uh, my parents are in the room. That was, that was a fun scenario. Hmm. My parents are in the room and uh, basically just catatonic uh, in, in shock from a cancer diagnosis. And uh, he flips over that doctor thing and he's got a pen and he says, hey, um, have you had any night sweats? And uh, as a teenager, I was like, unfortunately, no, I have, I have not had any night sweats. Then he says, um, have you been depressed at all? I said, absolutely not. At the time that I'm saying absolutely not, both my parents are nodding their head. <laughs> yes, very. He is very depressed. And I looked at them and said, what are you talking about? And then they started describing my behavior in the previous six months. And once they started making commentary on, on my behavior, it all came together. In my depression, I could not collect or connect any dots. Mm, so true. They were making commentary on, on where I am. That taught me as a very young man, even, uh, even in relationships that are strained, those people know truths about us. And to sit with those people, to sit with those people is a really big deal. And even the guys on the boat, like, this guy's the problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so for us to be able to open ourselves up and say, we talk about this a lot, being known by other people. What, what do you see in me? What's it like to be a, a friend of mine? I had a friend of mine saying, man, why are you you're always up in your room and it's always dark? I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> right? I'm not depressed. I'm not depressed. Leave me alone. Right? <laughs> um, but I'll tell you the main thing that blocked my ability to admit my depression was my church. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, because I grew up in such a restrictive environment, beautiful people there that loved me very much, but an openness to the emotional part of man was very scary. So we avoided it. We avoided it. I think what's changing these days, and I think the people who are there that were in community older than me already understood, yeah. is that there's a contract outside of these four walls. We know these things exist and uh, they're difficult things. So I think being able to admit that we're personally in the wilderness is one thing, but being able to open ourselves up to other people to say, hey, does it look like to you I'm up here or does it look, this is very basic man talk. Am I up here or am I down here? Just give me, give me, better one, better two. But the reason I bring that up is because spiritual bypass is real and it is possible for us one hour and 15 minutes a week to deceive others and maybe even ourselves mm. that we're not in the wilderness. Well, it's just, you know, the word intimacy, as we talk about that so much, has nothing to do with sex. Uh, the word literally means knowing and being known. And if I don't have that level of relationship in my life, or if my only relationship in my life is I put all of my emotional eggs in my wife basket, I'm in trouble. Now, I say this in front of other wives. I say this in front of my wife. I don't know if you guys know this. Some of the, the you that are married might know this. But in my experience, women just don't act right. Right? I mean, it's like. I'll be right back. I don't want to get up I know. We're going to get canceled. We just got canceled. Uh, Jeff, edit that out. And Take I, that out and post, please. I just say that to say it's like. Man, you're just walking down the street whistling Dixie, and all of a sudden she jumps out from behind the building with a two by four. It's what it feels like. Like, I thought everything was okay. And then it's like, oh gosh, yeah, the house is on fire. I don't know. But, but 
that's the way it works, right? They're not going to be perfect. And if we're looking to her for all of our validation, for all of our emotional needs, we're in trouble. Because that's not the way marriage was meant to be. It, it, there's too much weight on that bridge. You've got to have other relationships with other men. You can't go have relationships with other women. That's not going to end well, although it would be good for my business. Um, but it's like, you, where do you go and practice deep friendship outside of your wife? Where do you do that? And my contention would be, if you're not doing that, you don't even know how to love your wife. Because what you're doing is you're taking your neediness to her and not your strength. Your strength comes from other men. Men that are headed in the right direction, not your hunting buddies and fishing buddies and work buddies. No, it's other men that get this stuff. It's the only way it works. I always say, if I find a better way, then I'll be, I'll have a private jet. I'll be doing infomercials and I'll, I'll be good. But I haven't found another way that works in my 32 plus years of actively looking for it. About eight years ago, um, I buried my golden retriever and we, we had to put him down because um, he had an illness and he was either going to die peacefully or not. So <clears throat> I took him to the vet. Nobody in my family could go with me. I didn't want to go, but I had to go. And um, we, I loaded him up in the back of my CRV, leaving the vet because uh, I... You just lost your van car. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. You know, when you become a dad... <laughs> At least makes, you didn't say your Prius. Yeah, exactly. Or minivan. No offense. <laughs> uh, I load him up in the back of my CRV and... I don't know if you ever ever had this experience, but uh, they they put Cooper in a box and I get up to my parents house. My parents are retired and I was kind of hopeful that my dad would be there. Uh, he just coincidentally was not. There's just a lot of symbolism in this in the story. Not, not my dad's fault. He wasn't there. He just happened to not be there. And they had they had rolled him out to my CRV on a cart. I'll never forget this day and they put him in the back. But when I got to my dad's house, I was the only, my, my parents' house, I was the only guy there. And I opened up the back, they, they swing this way, I open up the back and I go uh, to grab the box and the box is warm. Mm. And uh, man, I just, I sat there and cried. I'm, I'm trying not to cry right now. I sat there and cried and cried and cried and cried, but I knew, I this dog deserves for me to do what I need to do right now. So I pick up the box and it was very heavy. Um, it, he was about 60 something pounds as a golden retriever. And I didn't realize how heavy the box would be. And I had a spot picked out in my parents' yard uh, beneath the shade tree there in the back. And I got about halfway there and I had to stop and set the box down. Mm. I wasn't strong enough, which a lot, a lot came up there. Um, I'm just describing, you know, sometimes we have these months that you describe, and sometimes we have these moments, mm. I feel like Alex. And I finally muster up the strength to pick up the box again. I make it, uh, I make it back to that shade tree, and then I have to go in my parents' garage and 
my dad's notorious for having broken shovels and pickaxes. And, uh, I don't know if nobody ever taught him to replace the handle or what, but I mean, it's just a like, well, he's a hoarder. Yeah. I guess it's like the handles are unnecessary. If you're a Derek, we'll just do it this way. So I finally find this really uh, dull shovel and I start digging and it's only about a matter of a minute and a half before I, I start to hit roots. And I'm just, man, I'm a mess. And at that point, I'm really thankful that nobody's there. And I'm hopeful that the neighbors aren't, aren't watching this scene with this large cardboard box and me uh, losing it there in the backyard. And it's hot, man. It was hot. It was the middle of summer. And I'm, I'm digging this hole and I just keep hitting roots. And the, every root, I, the more angry I get, every root I hit. Because the first one, I was like, well, that happens sometimes. But I mean, I don't know what kind of tree this is, but I curse them for eternity because of their root system and I'm, I'm just digging around and I'm, and I'm digging speaking of elephants I'm digging a hole large enough to bury an elephant because I'm just the prefrontal it's gone I'm just totally in the in the monkey brain and um, I'm just about to to quit and stop and cry again and I hear a shovel hit the ground beside the hole and I look up and it's Steven Soller mm. I don't even know how he knew wow. that I was in that backyard. I still don't know. Hmm. He doesn't say anything. He just starts digging. Wow. And then he hits a root. He's a strong guy. He breaks through the root. Then he hits another root. And I'm steady just losing it in front of him. And then he looks at me, and I'm waiting for something profound. And he says, you sure could have picked a better place to bury this dog. <laughs> That's a good friend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he, and he, he broke the moment uh, with humor. But the key is he was in it with me. Mm. He was in it with me. And there have been much more serious moments in our friendship than burying my dog, which is a big statement. Amen. But at that moment in that backyard, that man was Jesus to me. And I've never forgotten it. And I ache for the men in this room mm. that have never been in a backyard and had a man throw a shovel down beside you. If when you hear that story, you have that ache, I want to encourage you. Go to the valley willingly and watch for men to show up. Thursday morning is awesome, but you're walking into something probably pretty difficult in the future. And this is how God prepares us. He loves us by letting us know you're going to the wilderness. Jesus didn't have to go. He chose to go. Amen. Um, guys, just for time's sake, uh, just a couple of things on the handout. Um, you know, we talked about the five things a boy needs to learn to become a man. Um, not going to go through that. Uh, but boy, those, those are critical uh, pieces uh, in our journey. Uh, and it's critical in the transformation uh, of our trauma. And then the second piece comes from uh, George Barna's book, Maximum Faith. Uh, it's, and this is research. Uh, it's one thing I love about any of George Barna's stuff. It's all based uh, on research. And he's a very uh, devoted follower of Jesus uh, and respected um, in, in, in that part of the business world. Um, but the research that he did around kind of what he calls the 10 stops along the Christian journey. I'm not going to read through them, but boy, uh, it's very revealing. 
Um, and one of those things is uh, an experience, uh, a, a prolonged period of spiritual discontent. That's the wilderness experience because we question God. We question everything that we've learned. Uh, God drags us through that keyhole. And then we get to that place where I believe it is Christ and Christ alone. When it boils down, that's the end game. We need other people in our life, but you better do business with Jesus and you better get that part of your life straight. And so often in the wilderness experience, that's where he takes us to get us to that place. And then we live out what Jesus offers, his way, his truth, his life. Dude, I got to give you some props. I actually have watched The Chosen. I wasn't going to watch All it. Right. I thought it was another You're welcome. cheesy Christian thing. Uh, things around me crazy. But dude, uh, season two, episode two, Jesus does deer camp. I won't go into the story, but he looks at this guy. They're sitting around the campfire. He looks at the guy and he says, tell us your story. Holy cow. Hmm. They've been to deer camp. God tells his story and he gets love and he gets acceptance and grace. Man, that's what we all need. So we're just going to close out. Um, just I've shown this clip before. Uh, I think this is one of those clips. It, you ought to download it, put it on your phone, play it every morning um, as a reminder. Uh, because, man, this is reality. Brennan Manning um if you haven't read his book abba's child you need to it is excellent so jeff let's watch this video and this is going to be our prayer and closing in the 48 years since i was first ambushed by jesus in a little chapel in the allegheny mountains of western pennsylvania and then literally the thousands of hours of prayer meditation silence and solitude over those years I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers there will answer yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I try to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are going to have to reply, <clears throat> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. 
Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. <laughs> we often make God in our own image, and he wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never gonna be as you should be. Amen. Enjoy that one. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, there's a there's a weekend's worth.